Well, good evening all. It's a delight to be with you here in Cookstown for uh, the Bible Week. And I'm not a stranger to Cookstown as such, but it's my first time here in Molesworth Presbyterian. And I'm sure it's my first time fellowshipping with many of you folk from the Cookstown area. It's wonderful to be here uh, with you. Thank you to your minister here in Molesworth for the welcome and to Brother Shaw as well. It's wonderful to have fellowship with them and uh, with you tonight. We're turning in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're turning to Ephesians 6, but I want us to pray before I preach. I'm going to ask you to do this every single night just before I read the Scriptures and preach. I want you to pray, all right? I'll lead you, but I want you to pray. And here's what I want you to pray, that God would speak to you. I believe God's always speaking. But we need to be attuned to hear what he has to say. And sometimes, if we're honest, that's not the way we come to church. So let us turn our hearts toward God just now. And I don't know why you're here tonight. I really don't. (laughs) But maybe God is going to speak to you. You may not have expected such a thing. Imagine church, God speaking to you. But are you ready? Is your ear cupped heavenward? Are you expecting to hear from the Almighty tonight? Well, if you're not, get into that attitude right now. And let's just come a very brief prayer. But you say, would you, Lord, speak to me. You know your needs tonight. Ask him to speak to you. Let us all pray. Our Heavenly Father, Holy Abba, Father, we come to you in that name that is above every name, Lord Jesus Christ. And we invoke everything that that name encapsulates. All that the Lord Jesus is, all that he has accomplished for us at the cross and his resurrection, his glorious ascension to your right hand, the Prince and the Savior. Lord, we believe heaven delights in that name and we want heaven to come down and glory to fill our souls. And so we pray, Lord, come in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Come into our midst. Come to our lives. Penetrate our hearts and change us. Change this congregation, Lord, this preacher. And may it filter out even into this community from our churches. Lord, we need you. And we need you to come and meet with us. We need you to do a new thing in our lives and in our land. And so we say individually and corporately tonight, Lord, speak to us. Speak with the voice that wakes the dead and let your people hear. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we do take authority over every other dark presence that would seek to snatch away the seed of the word. And we rebuke the enemy in the name of the Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you will release on earth what you have already willed to release in heaven. And you will bind on earth what you've already willed to be bound in heaven. In the mighty, all-victorious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're starting to read at verse 10, and every night I'll be reading the same uh, portion of Scripture, so I'm hoping that by the end of the week you'll maybe have memorized it. It'll certainly have gone in somewhere if you're here every night. Verse 10 of Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. 
Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And we end the reading there. My subject has been advertised and uh, if I was to do it again, I mightn't advertise it at all, spiritual warfare. I've been hearing a few stories of things that have been going on uh, in the congregation here over the last week, and certainly I've known a few battles this week and the week before it. But you see, and this is my message tonight, there is a war on. And tonight will be an introduction to this theme of looking at the armor of God from Ephesians 6. But I, I feel that there's such an apathy and an anesthesia regarding spiritual realities in our materialistic West today, that we need to just pause at the outset and say, there is a war on. Are you aware of that? And when you look at what passes, particularly in the West, as general mainstream Christendom, you'd be forgiven in mistaking the fact that, well, it's just like a teddy bear's picnic or a Sunday school outing, this Christianity. But it's a war. And we, we very quickly, at a casual glance of the New Testament, discover that there is a, a collision of kingdoms that is going on in the spiritual realm. And whether or not you're aware of this as a professing child of God, you're caught in this battle. Spiritual warfare. Now, now, let me say right at the outset that we will be talking about the enemy this week. But I do not want you to become devil or demon conscious. My desire is that you would become God conscious. That is the intention of the Holy Spirit, I believe, in everything that he reveals from Holy Scripture. We ought not to be practicing the presence of darkness, but practicing the presence of God. And sometimes when you do look at this subject, we can become obsessed with the demonic realm. And sometimes when your eyes are opened to the reality of this sphere, one of the strategies of the enemy is to make us a little over the top with regards to this. So I want to warn you right at the outset, a public spiritual health warning, the objective of this week is not to make you run around looking for demons under every seat and in every teacup. The demonic realm is real. The devil hasn't gone away, you know. He's still around. And as one Catholic exorcist said, and I mightn't agree with many facets of his theology, but he was right in this one, and he worked in the Vatican. He says it's not that the the devil has raised his game in the day in which we live, but many more people are willing to play his game. I think he's right. But I've also got a hunch that as we come to the end of the age, that the devil is going to raise his game. And so as believers, let's be honest, many of us are struggling. We are defeated 
We may not share it in the prayer meeting or maybe even with our nearest and dearest, but we, we read in the Bible of great victors and conquerors in the faith in Israel and in the church. We look into Christian history and look at great missionaries. We read their biographies. We laud of days of revival. And we see these folk who were spirit-filled, blazing a trail for Jesus Christ, and then we look at our own personal experience and we, we know that something's wrong. There's a shortfall. Something is drastically wrong. And rather than being overcomers, we are overcome by darkness. I hope you know that there is a spiritual war on. And I hope you know that you have an enemy. And I hope that you're not ignorant to the fact that he hates you. Let that sink in. He detests you. Peter said, 1 Peter 5, 8, He goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the bottom line is, if Satan could kill you, he would. In fact, if he could take you to hell and destroy you forever, because that is his objective, to destroy the image of God in all of us, to mar God's creative idea. If he could, he would. Now, this wake-up call is necessary because, I mean, theology is a wonderful thing, but it, <laughs> it causes a lot of problems as well. And, and I have to confess that this probably would have been my leaning at, at one time, not so long in the past, that we have this concept, perhaps, that well, the devil was quite busy when Jesus was around. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it appears that just as Jesus went around his business, healing the sick, uh, teaching, and doing all manner of wonderful things, that the devil just came out from every rock. And every person that Jesus encountered, the enemy came at him. And I believe it was the presence of God in the Lord Jesus that almost drew the enemy out. He didn't go demon hunting. They just came out. And so with this concept, well, that was special to the time when Jesus walked among men. And maybe in the future, you know, and, and some people have a certain what we call eschatological view that sees the, the book of Revelation in a particular way, and there's going to be a whole lot of demonic activity in the end times, and many of you will agree with that. And there's all sorts of pits being opened and weird and wonderful scorpion-like creatures crawling out. And there's going to be this apocalyptic deluge of demonic power that will spread across the world. And of course, the personification of this will be the man of sin, Antichrist, and, and all the rest. You, you know about that. And I have to say, it's quite similar to the theology about the miraculous, even in the life of the Christian. The book of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But if we're honest we would say, well, he was the same way back then, and he's going to be that way when he comes again. But what about now? Well, I have a newsflash for you. Jesus is the same as he's always been, but so is the enemy. He is still at work. He is still alive and well on planet Earth. Be careful you don't fall into his trap of thinking that he's gone into hiding. There is a war on. And there's an enemy intent on your destruction. And whilst the New Testament does not want us to be demon-conscious or demon-focused, 
Neither does it want us to be ignorant. And you find this phrase repeated uh, several times, do not be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant, Paul in particular says. And on one occasion, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, the apostle says, I don't want you to be ignorant of Satan's devices or Satan's schemes. It's plans for you. A lot of evangelical Christians, bless their heart here in our land, you know, they believe you need to get saved, maybe baptized, however way you, you like to do it. And boy, so an added extra, if you can get them filled with the Spirit, that's a good one. But you know, if, if that's you, you're, you've got everything you need to know, and the enemy just can't come near you. He can't touch you. I'll try my best not to be too aggressive this week, but I have to tell you tonight, that is absolute nonsense. If you are a child of God, you've got to understand you're in Satan's sights. He is interested in you more than he's interested in folk as we say in inverted commas, in the world, because he has them. This whole world system lies in the lap of the wicked one. He's got control over them. He's got authority and rights in their lives. But what he wants is to get his vicious fangs into our lives as Christians to immobilize us for usefulness for the kingdom of light. New Testament was really written to Christians. I hope you know that. Of course, there's the four Gospels, the evangelists, but two of them probably have quite evangelistic slants to them, but they were given first to churches. And every epistle that was written were, were written to churches. And so all the material we have in Scripture warning us against the devil, warning us against demonic activity, is written to Christians. And in fact, on one occasion, Paul actually says... I fear for you, lest as Eve was deceived by the serpent, you should be deceived by his subtlety from your devotion to Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that you would believe another gospel or, wait for this, receive another spirit. That's what the Bible says. The enemy is out to devour us and we need to be awake. We're in spiritual warfare. And if you're ignorant to that, well, you don't realize you've already been overcome. I mean, if you're not, you're oblivious to all this, totally numb to it. You've been overcome already. If you're a true child of God, that is, really born again, and you know it, but you're not aware of any spiritual battle, well, I, I would say, make sure you're a child of God. But you've been overcome if you're not aware of the fact that there is a raging war going on in the heavenly realms. And you know, I feel it day by day. And I'm not being overdramatic. I feel it day by day. So we need the armor of God. Simple as that. But I have to caution you before we, we jump in and start putting on the bits, you know, the helmet of salvation or deliverance, which is the helmet of hope, the breastplate of righteousness, the girdle of truth, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and all prayer. And I do it in that order because it's from head to toe, and that's the way I can remember it. It's not the biblical order. It helps me in prayer when I'm praying through these things. 
But you see, there is a great danger that, that you could just say, right, oh, <laughs> I'll agree with you tonight, preacher, I am in a real battle, and I feel I'm overcome personally and in all sorts of areas, morally and even spiritually, the battle to pray and, and to read the Word and to do something worthwhile for the Lord. I, I've got you now. Uh, tell me, what's this armor and how do you get it on so as I can give the devil a good trouncing and I can be an overcomer rather than being overcome? Well, hold your horses. The armor of God comes in chapter 6 of Ephesians. That means there's, I'm not saying people in Cookstown are stupid now, but there's five chapters before that. What do those five chapters have to say? It's very important. Before you put, and this is why, before you put the armor of God on, you have to make sure that you're in a right state before the Lord. You see, there's a lot of people, and they're already wounded. You know what I mean? The enemy has got a shot at the jugular, or right into their heart, or into their spirit and soul, and they're injured. And there's no good an injured person putting, putting armor over an injury, a, a fatal wound. You need healing for that. And there are many Christians, and they are injured. And they need the supernatural healing deep within their soul and heart for that wound before they start protecting themselves against the enemy. Some folk, it's sin. The enemy has got in through sin. And by the way, those are usually the two ways that the demonic realm empowers wrong behavior through sinfulness and through woundedness. So we, we need to make sure things are right before we start putting on this armor. So let's look at the context of the book, first of all. I like Watchman Nee's summary of this book. He was a great Chinese Christian. In chapter 1, he says, it's all about sitting. And then in chapter 4 on, it's about walking. And then in chapter 6, it's about standing in the strength of the Lord. Now, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 3, it talks about how we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And so right away, what Paul does is, before he talks about our behavior, he makes sure our belief system is right. Now, that is a vital lesson. What you believe affects the way you behave. And equally, in spiritual warfare, what you believe will affect how you battle. And so Paul effectively takes the first three, four, five chapters laying down our belief system. And he says, first of all, we are seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. He has ascended on high. He has laid captivity captive. He has poured out the Holy Spirit. Now he has been glorified at Pentecost. He has given gifts to men. And we are now in our spirit, seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Put your hand up tonight if you're sitting in heaven. Huh? Sitting in heaven. You are in the spirit. That's where you are, in the spirit. Or that's where you're meant to be, seated with Jesus Christ. We have been quickened with him, chapter 2 says. We've been made alive together with Jesus in his resurrection, what we were singing about tonight. We have been raised with him. To sit together with him in heavenly places. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, we could spend all night on that. 
That is profound. Set your affections not on things on earth, but on things in heaven. Put your mind in heaven. Why? Because that's where you really are in your true identity, your human spirit. You've died with Christ. You've risen with Him. You're ascended in spirit with Him and seated with Him at the right hand of the Father. Isn't that wonderful? Boy, that would help you as you go through this life, wouldn't it? And that's what you need to get first of all in the right place before you start defeating darkness in your life. You'll never defeat darkness if you don't understand who you are and where you are seated as a child of God. Neil Anderson's books, I think, will be available uh, during the week. I would recommend his writings to you. But he has a slogan uh, which says, who you are determines how you behave. Not how you behave determining who you are. Let me repeat that. Who you are determines how you behave. Not how you behave determining who you are. Do you understand what that means? So many of us are trying to struggle and strive to be a good Christian. That's not the way it works. The way it works is understanding by faith the truth of what God's Word says we are now in Christ. And if we've repented of our sins, and if we have identified with Him as Savior and Lord of our life, we are seated with Him in heavenly places. And when we understand that, it will transform our minds and our hearts. And we'll get on to that when we look at the helmet of salvation. We're sitting in heavenly places. But then we see we have to walk. Chapter 4, following. I, be, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We haven't got time to look at everything that, that's mentioned here. But you see, I mean, in my background, I mean, there was a great emphasis on positional truth. What that means is understanding what we are now justified and sanctified by God's work and what the Holy Spirit has done. But you know, if I'm honest with myself and with a lot of people around me, there was again a huge gulf between what we were intellectually assenting to and our walk every day. You with me? You see, what we believe has got to turn around into incarnational truth, where we actually are living out the reality of what we believe. And if what we believe is worth anything, and if there's any true power in it, it will manifest in the transformation of the heart and the life in your walk. Just to highlight one thing, if you look at verse 30. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I mean, there's a lot in this epistle about how husbands behave towards their wives and wives behave towards their husbands, how children behave towards their parents and parents towards their children, how bosses behave towards their employees and employees towards their employers. There's a lot of practical stuff here about how we ought to walk, and it's unfortunate I'm just skipping over all that. But essentially, it's all summed up like this. If you want to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, put very, very simply, if you are arguing with God about anything, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. You understand me? 
if there is a contention between you and God's influence in your life. You're grieving the Holy Spirit. So is it conceivable that a child of God who is grieving the Holy Spirit could just put this armor on and face every demon of hell and expect victory? That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Because right away you're compromised. There's a chink in the armor. Whether it is a sin or whether it is a wound, some weakness, some infirmity that you're trying to cover up. So you've got to not grieve the Holy Spirit. And incidentally, if you come into chapter 5 and verse 18, the command is, and this is imperative, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that most likely will take place as a crisis in your life. As a child of God, when you surrender to the Lord and you take the promise of Luke eleven thirteen. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And I know there's different theological emphasis regarding this, but I'll tell you this much. You can't read the New Testament without concluding that the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost cannot be substituted. It's absolutely necessary. This Christian life is life in the Spirit. In fact, the tense is there in chapter 5, verse 18 is, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit if you're continually grieving the Holy Spirit. Figures, doesn't it? By the way, it's a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and I would encourage you tonight to obey that command and get down on your knees and repent of all known sin and take the promise of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost and get filled with the Holy Spirit before you even try to take on anything of darkness. So that brings us to chapter 6. Sit, walk, and then you can stand. Look at verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wives or the schemes of the devil. Now, this is very descriptive, verse 12, and instructive for us tonight. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, I don't have time to delve into all of this, save to say that what appears to be given to us here is a framework of a hierarchy in the demonic realm. God dwells in the heaven of heavens, and uh, the heaven that the birds fly in is the heaven that we know best. But then there is the second heaven. There is a, above the atmospheric heaven, there seems to be this place that Satan and fallen angels were cast to. And it is from that vantage point that Satan, the devil, who was Lucifer, he rose and reigns in his demonic schemes through all this network. That's the best way we could describe it. A network of power and authority. Some feel it's hard to be dogmatic that this actually mirrors the angelic hierarchy. And you know, you've got Archangel, Michael, 
you've got uh, an annunciation angel, Gabriel, and then you've got cherubim and seraphim, and then you would have warrior angels, what we might call ordinary angels, if there's such a thing as an ordinary angel. Wonderful creatures. But in the dark side, you've got a reciprocal mirror image. Of course, these many of whom were fallen angels themselves. Principalities and powers. In the book of Daniel, chapter 10, we read of the principality or the prince of Greece and the prince of Persia. And we read of Daniel, that prayer warrior, fasting and praying for 21 days. And God said to him, I heard you the first day you cried to me. But he was hindered in his prayers, or should we say, Michael the archangel was hindered bringing the answer to prayer by the prince of Persia. So this was, it would seem, a spiritual entity that had some kind of jurisdiction over a territory or a country. We don't know much about that, and we need to be careful delving into that. But it would indicate that there are certain demonic principalities over countries, lands, principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. One myth is that Satan can be everywhere at the same time. He is not omnipresent. He is not all-knowing. He is not omniscient. So he has this network of minions who do his bidding. And there is a power structure, a, a hierarchy. And they work against us. They come against us. In fact, Ephesians 2 actually says, if you look at it, verse 2, You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The enemy works in the lives of unbelievers, pulling their strings. But he is seeking to, to get his claws into our lives to paralyze us to be useful for the kingdom of God. Do you know that not only does Satan have a mirror hierarchy, but he also has his alternative armor. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, verse 20, and this is a very interesting verse. The religious hierarchy of Judaism were accusing the Lord Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the, the demons. Imagine that, accusing the Lord of being demon-possessed. That's how far their unbelief got in religious hardness. And in verse 20, Jesus said, If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that is a very important verse. Here's why I believe. If you scar the whole of the Old Testament, you will not find one instance of what we might call an exorcism or a deliverance. Now, you'll get Saul, who was tormented with a demon spirit, and David came and played the harp, and he was relieved and brought peace. But in the sense of which the Lord Jesus came and did his delivering ministry, you don't find that in the Old Testament. It appears to be a sign to show that the kingdom of God has come among us. It appears to have been reserved for the Lord Jesus. And then verse 21, it says, When a strong man 
fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are at peace. Now, the strong man here is Satan. And Jesus says he is fully armed and he guards his own palace. That word armed there is the word panoplia. It is the word that we get armor from. Some of the old Christian hymns talk about the panoply of God being the armor of God. But Satan here is the strong man and he's got an armor. Now, maybe you think I'm pushing this a little bit, but I want to suggest to you tonight what Satan's armor is. And this will help you, I hope. The armor of God. It's the exact opposite of the armor of God. So if you're to first of all put on the belt of truth, what Satan will fire at you day after day after day as a child of God is lies. Deception. Deceit. And what he wants you to do is to start entertaining it for a little while in your mind and um, ruminating over it. And eventually then it will get a, a grip upon you and it will affect from your mind down to your emotions and then eventually your actions. And it will actually dictate what you do because of a lie that came to your mind. You understand? What delivers you from that is the truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Unrighteousness is what the enemy wants to level against you. He is an accuser. He wants to condemn the brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants you to get all upset because of your failures and lose sight of the fact that Christ is your righteousness. There's a shield of faith. He wants to encourage unbelief and doubt in you. Skepticism, cynicism. He even use theology to do that if he can. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He wants you to doubt God's truth and dilute it. Explain it away. And it's not what Satan did at the very beginning with Eve. He entered her mind with the first temptation. And what was it? To question the veracity of the Word of God. The shoes of the gospel of peace. <laughs> Do you have peace of mind tonight? Do you have peace of heart? There's so many Christians, and they may not be alcoholics, and they may not be into gambling, or what, what we might class as dirty sins. But I'll tell you what one of the top ten Christian sins are anxiety, stress, fear that robs our peace. Do you recognize the devil's armor? Do you? This is what we're wrestling against. You know, we could take a, a poll here tonight and ask, what do you think the, the greatest challenge is for the 21st century church in the West or in the United Kingdom or here in our own land? What do you think it is? And we might get answers like, well, it's gay marriage or pornography or it's liberalism and theology or dilution of the gospel truth. And all those things, no doubt, are battles that we're fighting and we need to fight them. But listen, you've got to see beyond the government. You've got to see beyond the liberal theologians. You've got to see beyond the internet and the pornographers and all these folk that are trying to pull us down morally and, and spiritually. You've got to see that we're not wrestling with people. We are not wrestling with flesh and blood. All right, Christians. That's why politics, and thank God for the good that politics can do, but politics is never going to win the day. 
even ecclesiastical politics. It's not going to work. For the weapons of our warfare, if we're not wrestling with flesh and blood, we can't wrestle on the basis of flesh and blood. So the weapons God has given us are not carnal. They're not fleshly. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. God has given us spiritual weapons. The bottom line is, most of us aren't using them. Maybe don't even know what they are. We wrestle. Do we? Somebody was once reading that verse, the preacher, and he started reading verse 12. We wrestle not, and then he stopped. He says, that's us. We wrestle not. I'm almost finished. That word wrestle is taken from a, a concept of two slaves, gladiators. You may have seen it in the films. And they're both slaves, and they're fighting for their freedom, so they're going to fight till the death. And so when the stronger overcomes the weaker, this is what happened, and you'll have to excuse me, ladies. The overcomer would put his foot on the neck of the defeated. This is what this word wrestle means. And he would take his sword and he would take the point of the blade and with that point he would flick out the eyes of the defeated and blind him before he slew him. If we are overcome by the enemy, we will be spiritually blind. And you know, there's folk in the Christian ministry so spiritually blind that they don't even believe that the demonic is a problem for a child of God. Can I ask you a question tonight? And I don't want to appear arrogant, but this is a, a tragedy, a travesty. If you're born again, is sin a problem for you? Is it? Is there anybody here without a problem with sin? Come on now. Oh, I'd love to meet you. I'll introduce you to your wife. Huh? Sin isn't a problem. What about the world? Is the world not a problem for you? Huh? So sin's a potential problem, a big one if we're honest, and this world, but the devil, he's not a problem. He's behind sin in the world, but he, he can't touch us. Come on! Many of us have been overcome, and Jesus says, if the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I want to ask you tonight, where are you? Where are you in this spiritual battle? There is a war on. Are you overcome or are you an overcomer? Are you seated with Christ? Are you walking with Christ? Are you filled with the Spirit of Christ? Are you seeking not to grieve your Lord and Christ? Are you even engaging in this battle? Oh, I'm overcome from time to time, I assure you of that. I'm no perfect man. Far from it. But I know that I'm on the winning side and I know what I want to be and how I want to live. And the Lord knows that. But where are you tonight? Let me leave you with this. Look at the first verse we read, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the armor of God. This is God's armor 
And it's God's power. And it's God's might. And it's God's strength. And you know what the best thing that could happen this first night of of, of Bible week? A blessed defeat. Can I say something to you tonight? It's okay. Listen to me. I think this is a word from God for folk here tonight. It's okay to admit defeat. In fact, it would be advisable and desirable to be able to say, Lord, I'm finished. Lord, I've had enough. Do you know why? Because you're trying to do it in your strength and you're falling flat on your face every time. Maybe the enemy has got inroads into your life and has empowered demonically behavior that's going on, even as a Christian, because you've given him rights into your life. You've signed a dotted line, metaphorically speaking, by agreeing to partake of sinful behaviors, or maybe a wound that your sin has become a coping mechanism to deaden the pain. So the enemy's got inroads through that. But listen tonight, you've got to understand, you have not got what it takes Read your Bible, pray every day. It's not enough. It's good, but it's not enough. Go to your meetings. It's not enough. You need to have that moment where you completely come to an end of yourself and realize that in my flesh dwells no good thing and you die at the foot of the cross that Christ might live in you. I don't know where you are in the battle tonight. But I believe some of you are in concentration camps. Understand? You've been captured by the enemy and you've been imprisoned. And you don't know how to get out. Some of you are in convalescent homes. You've been injured. You've been wounded. And some of you have not just been wounded by the enemy per se, but by friendly fire. You know what that is? By Christians? Someone wrote a book years ago, Why is it the Christian army is the only folk that shoot their wounded? Hard, isn't it? Or maybe you're AWOL. You know what that means? Absent without leave. You profess the name of Christ and you're everywhere. One foot in the world and one foot in the church. Listen, there is a war cry tonight. You know that sign? Your country needs you. The kingdom of God needs you and wants you and is able to fit you and train you and clean you out, and fill you up, if you stand not in your strength, but in the strength of the Lord, and be adorned with the panoply of God. You can fight this fight, and better than that, you can win. Because when he cried at the cross, it is finished, the battle was won, and he has made us more than conquerors through him that loved us. You see, we stand on the victory ground, and we fight from victory, not to victory. Oh, I have so much to say to you this week. Oh, the Lord has. Will you come with me? Will you come with me? But before that, is there anyone tonight, before we battle and win from victory, is there anyone tonight who will admit a blessed defeat? Let us pray. And just in the quietness, And I invited you to ask the Lord to speak to you in prayer at the beginning. Has God 
come very near to you tonight? Is there anyone in the meeting this evening who knows God has spoken to them and knows they need to respond? And listen, understand what we're asking you to do tonight. We're not asking you to say, right now, you've got to respond to say, from this day on, I'm going to do better. I'm going to put my socks up. I'm going to try my best from now on. No, we're actually asking the opposite. We're asking you to be honest. Grace and truth come together. And if you want God's grace, you need truth. And you need to be honest with yourself, honest with God, and maybe honest with others. And then I believe God will meet you with His grace. And He'll give you repentance. And He'll help you with faith. Is there anyone tonight that would be man enough or woman enough to say, I have to admit it, I'm just, I'm defeated. And I don't want to be defeated, but I can't help it. And I don't know how to do any different. And I need God's help. I need the strength of the Lord. Would you, while every head is bowed and I close, would you be able to slip your hand up to acknowledge that? Just now. God bless you. Is there anyone else? Yes. While every head is bowed and I close, as a confession of your need tonight. Is there anyone else? God bless. There are folk responding, and I believe that's important. God bless you. Being honest. doesn't matter if you've got a position in this church or another church. I struggle. We all struggle. There is a deluge of immorality in our world today that is just incredible. And if you're not struggling, I don't know. God bless you. Anyone else? In the presence of God, is there anyone else who will deal with the Lord? I want to give space for you to respond. Is there anyone else that will come to the foot of the cross? Now let me lead you. And I know what the devil's saying to you now. He's going to say, listen, this is what he's going to say. You just do this and everything will go on the same as it always has. Who are you kidding? You'll not crack this with one meeting and a wee prayer at the end. She tried that before and it never worked. He's a liar. And if you believe that, it won't work. But you need to come. And maybe this is the first time in your life you've been able to say, look, I am defeated and I haven't got what it takes but Lord, show me. Don't bite off more than you can chew tonight, but just say, Lord, show me the areas that I need to deal with, the roots of this problem, whether it's hurt, whether it's a wound, whether it's something in my past, whether it's sinful choices I have made and habitual sins that I have made normal in my life. You just open yourself to the Lord and come to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I surrender to you tonight. With all my sin and my past, I surrender to you. With all that I am, what I know and what I don't know. Just do that now from your heart. Pray that to the Lord. Just say, take it on your lips and whisper it. Lord, I come to you. I come to the foot of your cross. I come with all my baggage and I come with my burdens. Whatever is the root of this behavior, whatever 
it is causing me to be overcome, I come to the foot of the cross and I asked you, Lord Jesus, I asked you to set me free. I asked you to show me what I need to do. But Lord, I need your strength and I need your power to do it. Might be forgiving someone. Might be an apology. Might be some form of restitution, putting right or wrong. I don't know. Maybe God will show you the rest this week. But you cry out to him and say, say these words. Take them on your lips. Next door neighbor doesn't need to hear you. Just you say it on your lips. Lord, I asked you to deliver me from any empowerment that the enemy has had over me. And let me just say, I'll be here all week. I'm not suggesting that I'm the only one can help you. I really can't help you, essentially. It's the Lord. But I want to make myself available to you. And of course, your minister and others will be here. But please, make this the night. Make this the week when this whole business of the battle in your life is settled so that you're on the right side, you're on the right line of fire. Father, I just pray over these dear people. And I pray, O oh God, that you will, by your Holy Spirit, push deep the spoken word of truth and power and apply it and diagnose, Lord, diagnose the actual issues, the fractures, the, the, the growths, spiritually speaking, that are blocking the life and the power and the victory. Lord, let us all be honest. We're all the same. We're in the same boat. We're all sinners, Lord. And there's none of us are anything but by your grace. And we all need the Lord Jesus. And we all need the blood. And we all need the power of the resurrection. But thank you, Father, tonight we can have it. We can have cleansing. And we can have that same power that raised Jesus from the dead in us. Oh, Lord, that's what we'll want. Nothing less but the very resurrection power of Jesus in us so that we may, having done all in this battle, stand in the strength of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.